This is middle. Can you count, suckers? And you, sir? Simple farmer who has prospered. The town looks to me as friend and counsel. And landlord and banker. Can we proceed? Thank you. I say the future is ours! What's wrong? Nothing. If you can count! This is middle class privileged elite in most countries. You have a pretty good idea of what's going on in the world. But they will not talk. But they will not talk. But they will not talk. Well, hello there. 2018 splutters into life as I drag myself away from the chainsaw, the axe, and my looming Norwegian round woodstack. I'm very excited about up here on the farm. But today we're going to uh, slide back into things with a collage. One of those kind of highlight shows, uh, slipping between a number of different uh, audio sources, including Captain Fantastic, the film from 2016, about a homeschooling single dad raising kids and some of the challenges that places the rest of their family in. We've also got some George Monbiot, Uh, Highlights of uh, Chris Cook, Cameron Murray from last year. Of course, there's always going to be a touch of Michael Hudson. Mr. Robot as well. And uh, Lewis Cole. I'm too scared to check my bank account. Doesn't that sound familiar? All right, let's get into it. What's a bordello? A whorehouse. Oh. What are you reading? Lolita? I didn't sign that book. I'm skipping ahead. And? That's interesting. Interesting! Illegal word! Dad, can you interesting? Interesting is a non-word. You know you're supposed to avoid it. Be specific. It's disturbing. More specific. Can I just read? After you give us your analysis thus far. There's this old man who loves this girl, and she's only 12 That's the plot. Because it's written from his perspective. You sort of understand and sympathize with him, which is kind of amazing because he's essentially a child molester. But his love for her It's beautiful, but it's also sort of a trick because it's so wrong. You know, he's old and he basically rapes her. So it makes me feel, I hate him. And somehow I feel sorry for him at the same time. Well done. Crack is a crystallized, highly addictive derivative of the stimulant cocaine. In the mid-1980s, it accelerated the decimation of inner-city neighborhoods. Crackheads, some of them kids just like you guys, were killing each other over nothing, over their Nikes. Yep. Hey, Saja? Yes? Would you please come down here a moment, sweetie? 
Mind ask you a quick question? Sarge just turned eight, by the way. The Bill of Rights. Amendment one. Congress should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of... Stop. Regurgitating memorized amendments isn't what I'm asking for. Just tell me something about it in your own words. It's not the Bill of Rights. We'd be more like China. Here, at least, we don't have a war on the searches. We have free speech. Citizens are protected from cruel and unusual punishments. That's enough. Are protected. Wait a minute. Sergeant, how would you characterize the 2010 Supreme Court decision on Citizens United? Corporations have the same rights as people, so there's no spending limit on candidates. Which means our country is ruled by corporations and their lobbies do fund candidates and command their fealty by demanding Jesus them. Christ. You made your point. We get it. It's very impressive. All of you. still holding on to it and we need to work on your anger issues elliot you're angry at everyone at society fuck society i know you have a lot to be angry about but keeping it to yourself and staying quiet like you're doing it's not going to help you there's pain underneath that's where our work needs to go what is it about society that disappoints you so much We thought Steve Jobs was a great man, even when we knew he made billions off the backs of children. Or maybe it's that it feels like all our heroes are counterfeit. The world itself's just one big hoax. Spamming each other with our burning commentary bullshit, masquerading as insight. Our social media faking as intimacy. Or is it that we voted for this? Not with our rigged elections, but with our things, our property, our money. I'm not saying anything new. We all know why we do this. Not because Hunger Games books makes us happy, but because we want to be sedated. Because it's painful not to pretend. Because we're cowards. Fuck society. Elliot. Elliot, you're not saying anything. What's wrong? Nothing. Are you, are you coming in? No, okay. <laughs> Bye. Hey, boy, I got that. Go talk to him. You got time. Ask her what she thinks of the working people creating an armed revolution against the exploiting classes in their state structures. Well, Marxists can be just as genocidal as capitalists. Or whether or not she's a dialectical materialist and courts primacy to the class struggle. Avoid Marxism. Or telling her you're a Trotskyite. Trotskyist. Only a Stalinist would call the Trotskyist a Trotskyite, and I'm not a Trotskyist anymore. I'm a Maoist. Right. I forgot. 
Sorry. The reason we're stuck with neoliberalism today, despite its multiple and manifest failures on just about every front, is that we haven't produced a big new political restoration story with which to replace it. And that's our task. So it's become clear to me that um, the driving force of politics is not political leaders, not political parties, but big political narratives. When Keynesian social democracy was dominant, everyone just about subscribed to it. Richard Nixon is um, alleged to have said, we're all Keynesians now. Um, the Republicans, the Democrats, Conservatives, Labour, they were all Keynesian. It became the common sense that everyone subscribed to. It didn't matter what your political heritage was, your history, your colour, you just fell in with the dominant common sense. And then when Keynesianism ran into trouble in the late 1970s and the neoliberals turned up and said, hey, we've got the answer. We've got the grand new story. And within a few years, everyone in politics basically became a neoliberal. It didn't matter where you came from. It's the big stories that swing politics. And the reason we're stuck with neoliberalism today, despite its multiple and manifest failures on just about every front, is that we haven't produced a big new political restoration story with which to replace it. And that's our task. Well, I think we've got beyond the point where some bloke with a beard sits down, or without a beard, sits, sits down and writes a grand theory and then hands it down to the minions to, to implement. What we saw, certainly with neoliberalism, was that you know, it started as a highly elite project with billionaires or multi-millionaires at the time um, funding think tanks and academic departments, um, sponsoring journalists, putting advisors into government and the rest of it. It was a sort of pretty sinister way in which they, in which they created a sort of neoliberal international, all very much under the radar. Um, and it remained a fairly elite project um, as, as far as its, um, um, its progenitors and, and its drivers were, were concerned. We, we don't have to do it like that. Um, we, we've got um, some really exciting new political movements which are ready to adopt big stories to go with the new big organising model which has become the driving force of a generous inclusive politics. Almost all political and economic debates at the moment are along one axis. State at one end, market at the other end. If you want more state and more market, uh, less market, you're on the left. If you want more market and less state, you're on the right. And we forget that the economy has four major sectors, state, market, household and commons. A lot to be said about the household, but I'm going to focus on commons for now. And we need to explain the commons because it's been so neglected by political and economic theory that most people don't know what it is. And a commons is a resource which is run and managed, controlled by a community for the benefit of that community. It's inalienable, it exists in perpetuity, you can't sell it, you can't give it away. And the product of that resource is shared on an equal basis between the members of the community. It's a non-capitalist system, it's a non-communist system, it's a different sector altogether. It doesn't depend on permanent economic growth, but the steady delivery of well-being and prosperity. So to give one example, the land. Uh, most of the land was once held in common. Perhaps all of the land was once held, held in common. Uh, but it's been grabbed and enclosed, um, principally by private actors, to some extent also by the state. Um, 
and we've lost this fundamental resource which secured our prosperity, which anchored our communities um, and which um, gave us our sense of belonging. And I feel we ought to try to reclaim that resource. And, um, and the way in which we can do it, I think, is first of all, you have a sympathetic government introducing land value tax and you introduce a, a pretty stiff rate of land value tax on the most valuable property, the most valuable land which has got the fanciest buildings on. Some of the money goes to government, some goes to local government to pay for essential services. The residue is distributed around the communities of, of the country and they're encouraged to set up a trust to handle that revenue and then you say, right, community right to buy. You've already got it in Scotland. I want to see that in the rest of the UK. Community right to land assembly as well. So if the community wants, it can use that money to start buying land. The prices come right down because land value taxation considerably suppresses the price of land. And you say, right, let's assemble a site. And what are our needs? Oh, yeah, affordable housing. And by that, I mean affordable housing, not affordable housing. Um, and um, so let's create a site. Let's bring in people at the top of the housing waiting list. We'll bring in a few owner-occupiers and a few private renters as well who can put down a deposit. And you say, right, here's your site. You're going to design it. Um, you're going to design the estate around your needs. You're going to design your own homes as well. Yeah, with professional advice, we'll, we'll sort of give you professionals who can show you all the different options and stuff like that. But you're going to do this. And then that um, group of people they have to work together. They have to form a community even before they're moved in. So that by the time they get there, they're already, they know each other extremely well. They've been working closely together. You've got a ready-made community, boom, straight there. And you've got a piece of commonly owned land. That trust becomes a common, a common land trust. Um, and you've got revenues coming in from the rents, lower rents than were, coming, were being charged before on that land, but their rents coming in and you say, right, what do we do? We could buy more land, we could supply public amenities, or we could issue a local basic income to, to the people of, of this community. There's, you know, suddenly all sorts of exciting options begin to open up. Well, at the moment, um, in, in J.K. Galbraith's words, we have a situation of public squalor and private luxury. And the problem with private luxury is not everyone can have it. There is simply not enough physical or environmental space for that. Here we are in Edinburgh. If everyone in Edinburgh had their own swimming pool, their own tennis court, their own play barn, their own art gallery, Edinburgh would cover the whole of Scotland, probably the whole of the UK. Um, uh, but there is enough space for everyone to have public luxury. If we have really great public amenities, those expand the space available to people rather than contracting it as private luxury does. Private luxury creates deprivation creates um, great affluence for some people and shoves others to the margin, the great majority to the margin. So private sufficiency, we should all be able to have our basic needs met um, and, and have a sphere which is ours, but also this public affluence so that we, public luxury, so that we can all live a fantastic life, all have a real wealth, a wealth which isn't necessarily monetized, but a, a wealth of opportunity, of experience, of leisure, of amenity um, and, and that we've got plenty of space for that and we've got environmental space for that as well rather than everyone fighting each other to grab as much as they can for themselves. The best way to tackle grey corruption in all the sectors we've looked at and all the research I've done 
is to is to tax or sell the value of these favorable political decisions okay somebody in politics has to decide how things are going to get done and where things are going to go and who is going to build the road etc okay these decisions have to be made in an administrative way uh, at some point but they don't have to have a huge value to the person who, uh, on the other side of the transaction, who gets the contract to build the road, who gets their land rezoned, because you can sell it. And that's why we have competitive tendering for construction contracts rather than just uh, asking your mates, please build me a new um, government facility, how much will you charge? No, we do it competitively so that uh, all the potential uh, sellers of uh, this uh, construction bid away their rents. We can do the same in rezoning and in Sao Paulo, Brazil, they offer additional development rights, certificates for additional construction potential. They call it and they go and they auction it so they actually raise the money and then the buyers of these certificates bid away the rents and the rents get captured for the public and that's a very very efficient way of raising revenue for the public what that means on balance is that the more rents you capture um, by selling these political decisions the less taxes you have to put on wages and, and labor incomes and all these inefficient other taxes we have in the economy Our goal should be a tax of 100% or close to 100% on the rinks associated with those natural resources. And Mark Rich was the first to actually come in and buy oil and sell it on to somebody else. And, and that's what he, he started to do. And many, many, many more traders then started to come in and acquire cargo. So an oil price, an oil market started to, to develop at that time. Um, and, but equally, different countries responded in different ways to what was called the oil shock. Um, the Americans were really crafty. Well, this is what Kissinger actually went to the Shah of Iran. He, he wanted the oil, he, he kept the oil price high at $12, you make, because the, the, the Saudis were prepared to actually reduce it back to three. And the reason they did it was they'd had this oil shock, and at $3 a barrel, they couldn't develop unconventional oil, i.e. in Alaska. When I say unconventional, I mean oil somewhere else. So um, in Alaska, in the Gulf, uh, the uh, U.S. Gulf, and of course in the U.K. North Sea, you couldn't develop it at three dollars a barrel, but you could at twelve. But the other thing which they did, the Americans did, which was genius really, was they created what's called the petrodollar. They um, agreed with the Saudis that the proceeds would be reinvested in the U.S. So that, because it, it really doesn't matter what you price oil in that much, it's what happens to the proceeds that matters. So all this, all these petrodollars flowed back into the U.S. and enabled them to fund the creation of uh, new supplies, which basically made them more independent of the Saudis and the Iranians. And that pro this is precisely what Obama did more recently. It's not been recognized that that's what happened since. So, so back then, we saw the coming of the middleman. Come on, man. Come on, man. 
I still want to get back to this question. How did the role of Jubilee really slip from being a regular occurrence? Well, it began uh, with the, the split within Judaism. When you had the, the mainstream rabbis who were led by Hillel in uh, Judah, supported uh, the wealthy Jews. And uh, uh, against that, you had sort of the bulk of the Jewish population. There was a group that followed uh, Melchizedek Zedek, uh, and then Jesus saying, wait a minute. Uh, he was denouncing the Pharisees, of which uh, Hillel was, and he was urging uh, for a debt cancellation. What ended the debt cancellations were the use of violence. Throughout antiquity, every major leader who canceled the debt was murdered, usually by the Romans, for instance, in the third century BC. Uh, the two, two Spartan kings, uh, Aegis and Cleomenes, uh, were murdered for uh, canceling the debts. In Rome, the uh, advocates of uh, debtors uh, were uh, murdered uh, for a whole century between the, the killing of the Gracchi brothers, 133 BC, down to uh, Augustus coming in in 29 BC. You had a whole century of basically political murder. So the wealthy vested interests in all times have always used force and political assassination in order to attack the the people who, uh, political leaders who wanted to cancel the debts or protect the debtors or redistribute the land and return the land uh, to the people at large. So violence has always played a major political role in changing the legal system. doing some research as well in Cape Town in South Africa. Uh, and I was reading that book, uh, Progress and Poverty. This is the magnum opus from uh, Henry George. And I was with a San activist. San act, the, the San are a people, if you've seen the movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy, they drop a Coke bottle out of the sky and none of the San have ever seen a Coke bottle before. And so they're they're confused by the whole by the whole incident, uh, they have a sort of a clicking 
um, language. But anyways, I was with this uh, with this activist, and we were you know driving in his truck, and I was reading Progress and Poverty, and I was looking out over these vast swaths of land that you know just growing up, I thought that people in poverty were in poverty because they were living in you know very desolate areas, you know no, not enough water, food, famine. AIDS, these kind of issues. But what I saw were just vast swaths of land between Cape Town and Johannesburg that were very fertile. So I asked, you know, who owns these? And his reply was, you know, people in uh, Europe, the United States. I came to find out later that one of the main land grabbers in the region is uh, American Ivy League universities. So uh, Yale, Vanderbilt, Harvard, these places of higher learning that supposedly... You know, and and I think their intention is to to do what's good in the world, but you know, who, like as that's filtered through board structures and and whatnot, it, it it's obviously not doing a lot of good. And you know, at the same time, while I saw these vast swaths of land that just weren't being used, I saw people grazing their cattle in the margin between the asphalt and the fence itself. And at that moment, I was reading about that classical economist David Ricardo. And his theories about, you know, what's, what causes the sort of the general, if you can say that, at the general level of wages in a society. Like, why do, why do people um, become more employed and have more excess income and, you know, what reduces that? And he said, basically, like, if there's a lot of good land that people can go to without paying rent, then landlords on better grades of land can't, can't charge them. Uh, a higher price, and so what they keep afterwards is their is their wages. The law of rent, yes. Yeah. So that's one of the the defining elements of Georgism is showing how uh, the last remnants of freedom are being able to. Uh, to to make productive some of these marginal sites that that as you explain in between the basically the curbside uh, land between the fence and the road uh, that's somewhere where people can actually keep all of their wages and so that really helps define what the minimum wage could be is what people can do alternatively outside of the the traditional market system to uh, use their own two hands on the land to look after them and their family and that's one of the other core aspects that is overlooked when people um, uh, grapple with this issue of poverty is you know what do we really need a job or do we just need to access some land and uh, understand how to grow a few crops Right. Yeah. People want what is, you know, the result of having a job, not the job itself. People don't like to to toil and to wake up early in the morning and cut themselves shaving. What they want is, you know, the money that comes from it or the or the wealth and, you know, through through whatever means. And and so uh, if um, if there's really great land that these uh, sedentary farmers can can go to without paying rent, then. You know, any kind of uh, lord of the manor is not going to be able to charge them more. And I don't mean to, like, throw feudalism into this as a, like, oh, we live in a feudalist system. I, I happen to think we do, but I wouldn't um, just throw that on your listeners as if, you know, they should, you know, sort of accept that. Take the case of uh, Paraguay, where I believe that uh, 70% of the land is owned by, like, 1% of the population. It's, like, four major families. And 
literally, if you are a tenant farmer on, on one of these big plots, you don't have a choice, right? You can go to one of the four families, but I would venture to say that they probably know each other and have agreements and are, you know, colluding to basically uh, keep wages low and rent high for, for these workers. Okay, that was the Renegade Economist show number 523, the first for 2018. Things will uh, slide back to normal next week. Check out earthsharing.org.au for more. And thanks for a few comments over the Christmas break. Always good to see you supporting this uh, ever-growing community of radical tax geeks, dare I say it.